Welcome to The Jeff Duden Show. I am Jeff Duden, expert entrepreneur and brand builder. I unpack experiences from today's proven visionaries, action takers, and business athletes to understand the perspective, decisions, and fundamentals that can be applied to your life. Topics include pursuit of learning, health and wellness, leadership, entrepreneurship, and much more. And away we go. Welcome to the Jeff Duden Show. I am Jeff Duden, and here we unpack experiences of uncommon people seeking to inform your life with their journey. I can't wait to get started, so let's jump right in. I am here today with Dr. Werner Barkhausen. Werner is a doctor of organizational psychology, CEO and founder of Dr. Werner B. Holdings, which owns several subsidiary companies, which include Talent Solved, Digital Clarity, Seville Consulting, Safe Extract, and Centurion Aircraft, to name but a few. He is an entrepreneur with varied business interests across the world, with a presence in more than 33 countries. And throughout diverse industries ranging from mining, franchising, to forensic psychology in countries such as South Africa, Russia, and the USA. Dr. Barkhausen brings a unique perspective to the field of business and organizational psychology. Not only did he establish one of the largest psychological assessment and talent management companies in Africa, he is also an accomplished helicopter pilot licensed on more than six helicopter types, and he holds patents and several interesting software solutions used in a variety of industries. As a licensed organizational psychologist... He has a passion for organizational strategy, values, culture, leadership, behavioral change, consumer psychology, augmented and virtual reality, psychometric assessment, and much, much more. I am so excited today for the time that we will spend with Dr. Werner Barkhausen. Welcome, Werner. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. I'm so glad you are, and I'm so looking forward to this. You know, we met maybe, has it been two years yet? I don't think it's been quite two years, but it's coming up on it. It's close. It's close. It's close. And like so many people, uh, it was a mutual friend who made an introduction. And I've always come to believe that half of life is showing up. And it was a Saturday and, and and a new friend said, why don't you come over and have a lunch with my wife and I and and a couple other people. And I and I said, you know, there was there was grass to cut and other things to do, but I showed up anyway, and and uh, that's where I met Werner, and I was immediately taken with him and his view of life, and uh, since then we've worked together on a couple of projects. So I'm very excited to get to share what I've learned about you with our listening audience today. Same here, Jeff. I have uh, I have one thing to say: it was love at first sight. <laughs> Fair enough. At least one way. All right. So what I'd like to know, uh, what I'd like to start with is uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and how did you grow up? So I, I grew up in South Africa in uh, what's called today the Gauteng province. And uh, this is around 60 kilometers south of Johannesburg in a little town called Mayerton. Now, this town only has like 10,000 people. And needless to say, everybody knows what everybody does. I grew up in that town. My my parents had um, their factory, their printing company, and I grew up there every single day after school. I walked uh, back to the factory and I worked in the factory. 
So I spend my afternoons, my weekends, my evenings there and learn but the, the ropes uh, in that industry. And um, yeah, that's where my, my love for business and, and entrepreneurship essentially started. So what was the product? What was the manufacturing? It was a, print, a printing company. So um, uh, it's called Lytho Printing. So typical, it's called jobbing. So simple invoice books, delivery notebooks, etc. So in those days, we still had handwritten delivery notebooks and invoices. Right, right. So you, how old were you when you first started working? Um, I shouldn't say it out loud because it's probably child labor, but uh, six years old. Okay. <laughs> so, so I um, I grew up, so every single holiday up until the age of, of actually 24 when I completed my, my second degree, I used to work at the factory and every single day I would it would range from working on a printing machine that requires intense detail and intense accuracy. You can imagine you have to be within literally a thousand of, of an inch to make sure it's perfect. Um, right down to doing uh, paving outside, you know. So I did everything, building walls, plant, planting trees, doing the weeds. and um, But the time that I really cherished was I used to hit under my dad's desk as a kid while he was busy with clients. I used to listen to the conversations, and that's why I learned a lot of my, my I would say, my, my key knowledge around business, how to negotiate, and how to make clients happy because that's my that's my life goal is to make clients happy. That's all I do every single day. That's outstanding. So, would tell us a little bit if you'd care to share about your family. So, you worked with your father. It was a family business. Family business. My uh, my father is a CPA by profession, but he found this little company that was in dire straits and uh, bought the company. Uh, they were desperate for cash, bought the company, and then started working there at night. And after a month, he realized he's sitting on a gold mine and then resigned his job and uh, grew the business into one of the most successful companies in that industry in South Africa. And I have a younger brother, younger sibling, and, and we work together there. So, you know, what's very funny, at the age of nine or ten, I would serve clients at the front desk and help them with design, choosing colors, choosing paper. I used to be so... Uh, proficient and competent at differentiating different pieces of paper that I could be do a blind test to to know the grammage of different papers. <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I worked uh, at a very young age as well. And I believe that experience served me very well. Getting a realistic view of the world and, and solving real world problems, there's really no substitute for that. And now I as... Think- Go ahead. I think what it did as well, Jeff, what, what was interesting is I learned at a very young age to be self-reliant because when you're standing as a, as a, as a kid, essentially a 10-year-old in front of an adult who's going to pay money for a product or a service, you, you need to think on the spot and you need to make the right decisions in order to, to satisfy their particular needs or wants. Great. So you grew up in the business, and mm-hmm. you also grew up watching a business grow. Exactly. And that's a special opportunity for somebody because you you get to see the hard work that gets put into a business. You yes. know, businesses take longer and are harder than most people expect. And growing up and seeing that, probably watching your family work long hours and solve real problems 
is uh, is something that I'm sure was formative to you. And then as you as you grew up, was there ever any thoughts about going into the family business, or how did you transition from working in the business? Uh, what did your education look like as you were growing up? What, what did, were you getting interested in? Well, well, I think the one thing I learned is, um, you know, from my my parents and and their family, they always said you have to work hard to be successful. But I I realized that you have to work smart to be successful. It's not it's not how hard you work. And the long hours, you cannot equate hours with hard work. It's about how smart you are and what you do, how you leverage, how you build relationships, how you use other people's strengths and, and uh, their particular skills to, to leverage and build something something great. So I realized at a very young age, I do not want to work. You know, my, my dad some days would work two days without sleep. And I just realized I'm not scared to work hard, but I'm not going to work like that. So... I then realized that I need to to get into a profession that, that interested me at that point, which was psychology. And, um, of course, I, I started with clinical psychology. So I always wanted to be a clinical psychologist. Uh, it fascinated me the way the mind works, the way people respond, and, and how behavior, you know, why people do things. And so at a very young age, I started reading books, and, and I made up my mind around the age of 16 that I want to be a psychologist. And, you know, in our town, there was also a professor of psychology who I, um, who I met and um, spoke to him, and he also guided me in, you know, that I'm making the right choice. So I knew very quickly what I wanted to do. So was that your first exposure to the field of psychology, or was there how, – how did you choose it as a vocation? So, so what's interesting, Jeff, is the moment I realized that I'm interested in people and interested I you know it's at some point social work and all of these opportunities also um, showed up in my research but I I realized psychology is for me the more I started reading about it and understanding it the more I realized that's something I could do because I have you know I'm, I'm able to read people's emotions relatively quickly and I felt that the professional experience and exposure and understanding human behavior would be very helpful in the future that's great so you have a traditional high school over there, or how does the school? How does the education system work yes. in South Africa? High school, high school, university. So I finished high school. Um, I had a very, I had a very tragic event. So in in my last school year, my my best friend and I went in a motor car accident two days before the major exams uh, to finish school, and he passed on sadly. And I never wrote that exam, so I got special permission to go to university and, and actually redo my school year while doing my first year at university. So I was doing both of those and um, studied for my, my B degree in psychology and then I completed a honors and a master's and then I realized that I want to be a clinical psychologist. So when I started doing clinical psychology and sitting with people one-on-one, -on -one, the funniest story is when I did, I wanted to be a sex therapist um, and um, during a few of my first sessions, I realized this isn't going to work. I can't do this. So I then changed and I redid an honors and a master's in uh, organizational and a PhD in organizational psychology. So that's how I changed because I had this business experience, the business, you know, I always had this fire in me to do something entrepreneurial. And um, I think I did share with you, I started my first business when I was 12 years old. We lived on a, on a farm and um, that always stuck with me. So 
um, I think business psychology just worked for me. Tell us about that business. What business was it? So we lived on a farm and uh, the farm was around uh, 15 miles from town. And uh, all of our employees on the farm, the farm workers, they didn't have access. The shops were quite far. So I became the conduit for shopping and I added a little profit to that. And then I started, uh, they uh, they rented uh, bicycles from me. They rented Walkmans. In those days, you still had Sony Walkmans. They rented that from me. So I, that's how I built my first little business, a rental business. <laughs> the opportunity. So you're at university and you've decided on a career. And at what what do clinical psychologists do when they graduate? Do they typically go to work for a firm or do you do research? You do an internship with a, a government institution or any medical facility where you would have clinical clinical patients. And um, what, what happened is whilst at Varsity, one of the, the key sort of, let's, let's say, um, pivotal moments in my life was when my father said, I said to you, I'll pay for your first degree, the rest you have to pay for yourself. And then I realized in order to get a master's degree, I've got to, I've got to generate income. And then I started a clothing company. And um, I used that funding from the clothing to pay for my studies. So the, the, the need for money created my, my, um, my first business at that stage at Varsity, which then grew into a different company. And, and up until now in my life, I've had more than 30 businesses, um, of which seven are still active. So a pivotal moment was, was when my father said, you have to look after yourself now. And, um, and that's when I made that, that decision. Also, that clinical, um, you know, I didn't enjoy it, and I need to do something in business. So I changed to business psychology. All right. So f- from that point, you're, you have your first business, and you're, um, you're looking out at the world. You know, what, what are you thinking at that point? Can, do you remember what you were thinking? Who, who was in your life and who were you talking to? You know, it's, it's, I was always, so I've always been someone that, that seen opportunities and I believe that entrepreneurs, you know, there's, uh, entrepreneurs can do anything if they put their mind to it. You don't need to be a specialist or an expert in a particular field. If you are able to, to coalesce people to deliver a result. You don't. You don't need to be an expert. So I always saw opportunities for business. Um, you know, I got involved in property development. I got involved in in a number of things. The people around me were were, were very much alike in their thinking. So we used to share business ideas. We did things together. And um, you know, I was al- always the one that said, no matter what, we we're going to do this. We're going to deliver it, because I grew up in that environment that nothing's impossible. You know, I'd, I'll never forget, I had one transaction on a Friday afternoon. Someone flew in from Gab- Gabon, which is a country in Africa. And they said, we've got an election in three weeks and we need 100,000 flags, 50,000 T-shirts and 25,000 caps. And we need a Tuesday at the airport. And my friend, who was my business partner at that point in the clothing company, said, it's impossible, we can't do it. And I kicked him under the table and I said to the client, we can do it, but the money must reflect in our bank account this afternoon, which it did. And I spent three days making sure we delivered to that client. We, we had the stuff at the airport ready to go to Gabon for their 
for the uh, elections. So I've always had this drive to to say nothing's impossible. Anything can be done. That, that is a great story. Talent Solved is a international business, and it is about executive recruitment, executive assessment, executive coaching, I believe. Can you tell us about Talent Solved and what it does? Yes, so recruitment, development, selection, performance management. So we we typically compete. It's a software solution that's online, and we typically compete with SAP, Oracle, PeopleSoft, um, et cetera. So, so our products are used by a number of companies uh, that ranges from blue chips right through to, to small organizations with 100 or 200 employees. And it provides organizations with a, a view of their talent pool, what's the depth of the talent pool, what do they look like, where do they need to fill in the gaps. And essentially, it enables them to understand where can they take the business, what, what do their people look like, and, and can people deliver on their strategy ultimately. When I meet entrepreneurs like yourself that have been very active in a number of businesses, they usually have a common thread that binds their businesses together. Werner, what would you say is your common thread? What do you look for in a business? What do you, what do you see and you say, that's a good fit for me and what I do? So it's very funny, Jeff. Like I said earlier, I've, I've never, you know, one of, one of my businesses that I sold, um, was a was a headstone company in in the granite industry. So you'd ask yourself, well, what do a psychologist do with a with a headstone company? And it's a very funny story. One of my clients that we have a talent solve, a CEO of one of the largest insurance brokers, said to me one day, "Do you know someone who could? Um, we've got a product, and and we need someone to to produce a number of uh, solutions around this insurance product. One which includes." headstones do you think you can help and i said give me a day or two and i'll i'll get back to you and i phoned him back and i said yes we can do it and i started a headstone factory and um so so for me the thread is does it make sense is it something that you can execute is it something that you can automate because i love automation i think one of the the biggest challenges for any entrepreneur is automating things you know there's a business process and and most people Again, it goes back to working hard versus working smart. You can set up a company today, and it's fascinating. You can build a company in a day online, and you're done. And it's fully automated. You don't need to worry about a single thing. All you need to worry about at the end of the month is checking whether you have money in your bank account. So it's really, I think the key for anyone is to understand that business is about understanding who's your client and how can I automate all the engagements, all the transactions around this business. That's fascinating. Technology has certainly been a theme for you. Yes. When did you first realize that technology was going to be an important part of your career? So, again, in, in my endeavors to make money to, to pay for my studies, I, I learned about the Internet. And this was 1996. And um, I've always been a keen coder and, and um I played around my my father. One of his other companies that he started was a, a hardware, you know, they sold PCs. Um, and I had a little ICL Elf. And I used to play and build games and things. And then the internet came and I had a modem, uh, a 9600 nine, KBS, which was super slow. And um, I started building websites. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is cool. There's a lot of stuff, for instance, 
psychologists spend a day writing a report, but I can automate this report. So I can build a template and everything's based on rule basis and and that's just how I got into technology. Was that the genesis of Talent Solved? Exactly. That's how it happened. So we we had assessments, clients gave us volume volume assessments, they complained the reports were too slow. And I got a coder in, I said, Listen, this is what I built in Access, I'm not happy with it, make it better. And that's how we that's how we started, yes. Businesses can be built in a day, and when we learn a skill or we get an education, we see opportunities in the market to create a variation on a theme and serve a new niche. But scaling, scaling these businesses, what can you share about any fundamentals you've learned about scaling businesses? I think the very first thing you need to do is work yourself out of a job. Okay. When I, whenever I deal with, with individuals, when I do coaching, especially in small organizations, 50 to 100 employees, you, you'll find that the CEO or the founder is still intricately involved in everything. So they want to know everything, they want to do everything, and they don't want to let go. The first thing you need to do is let go. Letting go enables others to be their best. If you don't let go, and you and you keep on watching, you keep on interfering, people will not will not perform at their best. They will not deliver and they'll feel that they you know, you are not relying on them, you're not trusting them. So the first thing I do is I I look at the, the challenge, I look at the business and I said say to myself, How would I do this? And I essentially slice myself into five or six pieces and say each of these pieces represent a particular task and then a particular person. So also when I allocate tasks, I try and I don't try to overload people. I try and enable them to do one thing at a time because if they're good at that, they hand over a quality product to the next person in, in, in the line. And if you hand over quality products to each other internally, you give your clients a great product. So that's, that's what I tend to do. Is there a particular point in time, maybe a failure that led to – your commitment to getting out of the way of these businesses. I've seen you do it, and I know that it's not lip service. You're committed to it. You've told me, what, don't get your hands, don't get your hands dirty. What's the phrase you use? Don't, don't get your hands dirty, but keep them busy. <laughs> there you go. Don't get your hands dirty, but keep them busy. Yes. So was there a time or a, a, a business challenge where you reflected and you realized that, Maybe I was trying to do too much inside of this business. Yes, absolutely. There was a time where where I I set up a automated call center. When you called the office, it would go through to me, and I'll say good day, uh, good afternoon. How can I help? And then they'll say we need accounts, and we transfer the call to accounts, and then I answer again. Good day, this is accounts. How can I help? And sales. So make a long story short. Yes, I tried and I did everything myself. And and what happened is. Um, and, and it's, again, a very funny story. We, we had to, because I had this clothing business, I had to um, embroider shirts for a client. And it was only 12 shirts, small little project. But I was so tired that I completely messed up all 12 expensive shirts with the embroidering because I fell asleep. I was just too tired, fell asleep. The machine, the next morning they, when I woke up and the machine was botched, 
I couldn't deliver to the client. I had to go and buy new shirts, get someone else to do it. Made a huge loss, and I realized this got to stop. I've got to get someone to do this. And that's when I when I also realized, you know, you you as a human, when you make a decision to build something, lead it. Don't don't get involved in the details, but lead it. I've heard people say you should give away what you know the best because mm-hmm. you know better than anybody if the job is getting done correctly. Yes. I always, and I think I shared this before, is I have a rule. I know I can do something in three hours, and I add a zero to that, and I'm happy to wait 30 hours as long as it's as good as I would do it. That's fair. I think Rockefeller said I'd rather have I'd rather have um, 1% of 100 people than 100% of one. Ah. <laughs> so I apply that in my life as well. Ah, fair enough. Interesting. Well, we're talking about your management style and, and lessons learned. You shared with me at one point about how long people are expected to wait before they respond to a team member or to a customer. Do you remember that conversation that we had? Yes. What, what was the rule of thumb that you used? So we have a rule internally. So internally to each other, colleagues, um, you know, internal resources, 15 minutes response time and clients two hours with a proviso that they receive an email within 15 minutes to say, we will respond to you within the next two hours. And we actually, in our SLAs with our clients, if we do not respond in, in, in the two hours, we pay them. Fair enough. <laughs> it's putting your money where your mouth is. That's great. Exactly. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and mm-hmm. talk about a couple of personal items. First of all, I would like to hear how you first became a pilot. So, Jeff, again, I from a very young age, when I was two years old, I used to hear the Boeings fly over the house and I'd point up to the sky and um, airplane was one of the first words I could say. So I've always wanted to fly. And my dad and I made a deal for every dollar that I save, he would give me a dollar. So I saved from the age of six up until the age of 21, I had exactly enough money to do my pilot's license. <laughs> That's how it started. So I um, I saved for a very long time. So you got your pilot's license at 20 and... 21. At 21. Is that for airplanes or helicopters? Or- Heli- uh, helicopters. So for helicopters and... Um, I, you know, it's 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 like any other addiction. Once once you're up there, you you never want to come down. You know, the the only limitation is the fuel in the tank. So, the moment I did that, I realized I need to do more of this, and then I just started upgrading uh, my my uh, my machines, my helicopters. The bigger, the better. <laughs> <laughs> ah, outstanding. So you're you're living in South Africa with your with your wife and children mm-hmm. and you have you have a great life you've got incredible property and you've got an incredible business and you've you've got your helicopter and your family and, and everything's going well uh, and then you know things change over there uh, from what I understand and you decide mm-hmm. to migrate to the United States can you share a little bit about that decision process and uh, the journey? Sure. So we, you know, it's it simply, and in, in, uh, I won't elaborate in the detail, but 
on the detail, but essentially it just became unbearable. It became super dangerous. Um, we got to a point where we couldn't go anywhere without fearing that we'll either be hijacked or shot or something. So we just decided we can't do this. And two incidents where my wife was, was hijacked at gunpoint made us decide this is it. So we moved to America and essentially I, I realized that uh, no matter what's happening in South Africa, going to the US would be new. We don't know anybody. Um, you know, I've, I've tried for years to crack the US market. I've made little inroads. Here and there I've been quite successful and I was gonna leverage on those clients and those relationships. But life was going to change and be different. Um, and, and sure it was. When we moved here, you know, I, I haven't locked my door in 19 months. I, I haven't locked my car in 19 months. I, I sleep way better than ever. And the U.S. is amazing. And the business, you know, the way things work here is it's, it's the land of milk and honey. <laughs> Incredible opportunity for those who are willing to reach for it. And to work for absolutely. it, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's great. And then you've um, you you established yourself here, and your family's doing well. Uh, what has been their experience? What any interesting stories that you care to share about uh, them transitioning into the U.S. way of life? Well, I think the first thing, um, and and we always joke about it, is that um, you know we speak the same language, but we do not understand each other. Because different words, you know, we, we use the word hamper as a gift box. In America, it's your dirty laundry. Ah. So, um, you know, little things, nuances that we've, that we've had to learn. And, and in general, we, we've, you know, I, I just think it's been a shock for us that it's the freedom, the ability to, you know, in, in South Africa, I did not allow my kids to play outside without us because it was just too dangerous. I would not allow my kids, my, my son couldn't ride his bike in the street. It was just simply too dangerous. So, yeah, it's, you know, I'd, some, sometimes I would, I would ask my wife, where are they? And she'll say, oh, they're playing outside. And, and it's just, so, so from that perspective, we're super blessed. And, and really, you know, I, I regret not doing it earlier in my life. That's, that's the one regret I have. I'm certainly glad that you're having a good experience and we're honored and fortunate to have you here with us. And you landed here in North Carolina by me. So I'm I'm doubly (laughs) blessed with, uh, with your, with your presence. So very happy that you made the, the choice. I'd like to move on a little bit and really dig into some of your core beliefs about people and psychology and some of your interesting perspectives on life. You've shared with me on occasion that uh, life is an illusion and everything is an illusion. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think what happens is we're taught to believe things. So from a very young age, we are programmed by the system, by media, by whoever to believe things. And, and these things may not be true these things may not be untrue but the fact is we are taught to believe things and we grow up with these beliefs that ultimately um gives it provides us with meaning now if something provides you meaning it gives you value if you have value you have meaning so people build their values on what they believe and the question is we have to question what we believe because everything everything in life 
is around what you believe. So the question is, what have you been taught to believe? And that's why I think people, you know, we think we think we know, but we don't know what we don't know. Because we, we tend to just accept things without questioning. We don't challenge. We are taught not to challenge. And, and one of the things that I teach everybody around me, including my, my team members, is never accept anything at face value. Challenge me. If I say something, say no. Why? How? Who? Because in that way, we encourage ourselves to think differently and, and not to accept the status quo. Yeah, I've I've found in the conversations that we've had, you've shared a perspective. Sometimes we've talked about uh, a book or two, uh, but I've always found that you have had a a different view of reality. And I noticed one of the things that you uh, have an interest in is augmented and virtual reality. What do you? How do you use that? Do you use that in your business, or is it uh, something that you that is a uh, more of a, a curiosity for you? So, so we're jumping from topics, but they will integrate ultimately because the whole life. I think if you uh, if you think about it, your this moment in time is just what we make of it. Um, okay. You know, it, it could have different meanings to different people. So, and that's the whole point around a belief. Different situations, different stimuli, different events have different meaning um, to people. So, um, to, to answer your question, the reason I became interested in that was, you know, if, if you think of things like a fear of height, the fear of height is something that we've been taught. It's, it's it's something or, or even a fear of, of a spider or whatever the case may be. So in this case, it was an interesting request from a client. They said, we we need to test for fear of heights because in our in our uh, plant, we have people that go up to, you know, 300 feet up in the sky and we need to know whether they can do the job because we appoint them, but they get up there and then they can't do the job. So we then created a, a little test where you put on the hollow lens and you walk around and you get in this uh, elevator that takes you up to 300 feet and you have to do the things and then you look down now with this helmet on or with a with a hollow lens when you look down it literally feels like you're 300 feet up in the air guess what happens we test 100 people out of the 100 92 people don't want to walk off the platform because at the end of the test when you're done it shows you can either take the, esc- the the elevator down or there's a little arrow that says just walk off here. And people don't walk off because they're too scared because they think they, they're 300 feet up in the air. So, so that fascinated me that a, a virtual reality test could, be, could, could have that impact on people. And that just shows you how we think. Yeah, there's no real risk involved, but still – it's literally, and I mean, we had people in there that started sweating. You know, they would try, but they started sweating. Their armpits, it, it's crazy. It's fascinating. So so that's why I got involved in that because there's a number of things. You know, in psychology, we use psychometric assessments, self-assessment, you test personality, and then, of course, you have ability and aptitude. But, you know, there are a lot of assessments like for pilots. Um, it's called the tilting room, tilting chair test, where they sit in a dark room, you tilt the room. And they have to tilt the chair to align the room. Um, so little things like, like that. But for things like fear of height, I thought that was a cool test. So those are one of the things that we that we developed. 
Oh, very cool. Very cool. So I'm going to ask you to tell me a story about, um, you know, maybe a, a time where you were working with a client and you, um, you knew what you were, you know, you knew what they needed to do. And, uh, and I've, I, I know that you like to challenge people because you challenge, you challenge me all the time and I appreciate it. I've learned to appreciate it very much. Like it's this concept of self-sabotage and self-defeating. Why are we so resistant when a trained psychologist comes to you and gives you precedent and chapter and verse and makes a case uh, for a behavior change, but yet we're so resistant to it. What is it about us that makes us so averse to change? And why do people self-sabotage so frequently? It's our egos. Okay. So, so I think the first thing Certainly is you're we- not talking to me, sir. <laughs> no. <laughs> So I think the first thing we need we need to do is to remember that our egos, you know, if if you think about it, when when you fail, every time you fail. So if you tell a CEO that's not going to work, they you telling them they're going to fail. So when when we fail, what we become deficient. So we feel that that we've lacked something. We've been let down. We lack the fervor. We've we we're basically not good enough, and that's all ego. Now, what we need to do is we need to learn to succeed to fail. So you, you need to use your ego and leverage your ego to, to stumble courageously. Fail is a good thing. Failing is great because when you fail, you know, we are taught to compare ourselves normatively to others. So the moment I ask you, Jeff, are you a great leader? The first thing you're going to say in your mind, you're going to compare yourself to your peers and say, compared to them, I'm a good leader. I'm a great leader, whatever the case may be. Hmm. That's a normative comparison. But when I say to you, Jeff, are you a great leader or are you a great team player? Which one is most like you? Now, what happens there is then I'm not comparing you to others. I'm comparing you to yourself. So it becomes an intrapersonal comparison. And, and that's that's where the ego comes into play. Because what we need to do is we need to say that, you know, my ego is driving probably 90% of my decisions. So you you have a fear of failure, what are you going to do? You're going to follow the path of least resistance because that's you, you're going to say, well, it's always been done like that, therefore I'm going to do it the same way, as opposed to saying, so what if I fail? Then I do it again, and I do it again until, I, until I'm successful. So, you know, um, one of my, my favorite... Um, People as Winston Churchill, he said, success is stumbling from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. And and every time we fail, instead of instead of dwelling on it, say to yourself, but, you know, what did I learn? What can I do differently? Because if you think of society, and, and that's why I say to you, it's all an illusion. Everything around you is what we've been taught to believe. So we've been taught to believe that something is a failure, but it may not be a failure. And, and that, that particular experience is a learning experience. And we need to fail in order to succeed. 
That's why you need to succeed to fail. <laughs> I see. What is extrospection and how can we learn to use that to help ourselves? So I think one of the one of the things that, that a lot of people don't do is we, we don't look at ourselves. So you're looking at yourself from the outside in. So so literally sitting you know, imagine yourself in the corner looking at yourself, observing your nonverbals. You know, a lot of what we do is nonverbal. So one of the things when I engage with people is I always um, look at, at their nonverbal behaviors. And I look at their eyes, I look at their face, I look at their body, I look at their hands, I look at their posture, etc. Because nonverbal cues account for 55% of our behaviors. So that 55%, before anybody said a single word, you can make a judgment. And and what's interesting is all humans have this innate ability to judge. That's why sometimes you have this gut feeling about someone, but you can't pinpoint it because you actually don't know what you're looking for. But you you feel it, you know, it's it's in your mind. So 38% is tonal elocution, only 7% of the is the words. So if you think about it, you can you can change your own world by just looking at yourself and looking at your own behaviors how do you respond how do you act and if you perform extrospection it enables you to get to know yourself better and if you think about it you know Carl Jung also said if you want your vision to become clear you have to look into your heart you looks outside dreams you looks inside awakens and I live by that I spend every single day looking at myself and saying what did I learn what can I do differently how can I how can I change that you know, Charlie, Charlie Chaplin said that failure is unimportant. It takes courage to make a fool of yourself. So the point is, who really cares? Nobody cares. That's if you right. fail, you fail. So forget ego. Ego is what what makes the world what it is today. It's, it's all about ego. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. We'll edit this pause out. I had a question. I'm trying to get it back. And then I started listening and got fascinated. And you've taken me <laughs> off my questioning. The um, let's see, we were talking about extrospection. Anyway, I had a I had a really good I had a really good follow up to that, Werner. Um, well, let's move on to um, a couple of other uh, questions. And um, I'm, I want to make sure, Warner, that we talk enough about your work. Mm-hmm. Are there other things around your work or there key beliefs that you think would be important to our audience? And the Jeff Duden Show is about entrepreneurial encouragement. Mm. People need encouragement. They need to know that if they take a chance and they they don't hesitate. They don't let other people's thinking inform their decisions. Let other people's constraints become their constraints. That mm. anything is possible. And that's why I like so much your talk track around everything being an illusion. Because I believe that you can make a different decision tomorrow and change your life overnight. And... It might take time and work and effort for it to manifest and for it to become visible or to become productive or to become practical. 
But inside your head and your heart, you can be living a different life tomorrow. It is everything is about what you make of it and how you apply meaning to it and put perspective on it. And I've just, Mm -hmm. I'm so bought in to that being the number one path to people changing their life through entrepreneurship and to changing their station in life and to making the impact that they've always wanted to make in other people or in an industry or in the world. It's just this life we have is just so rich with opportunity and we have so much to offer and we get conditioned or led to believe that what we think is is who we are uh, or or who we are is 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 only going to fit within a certain within a certain box and mm-hmm. by changing our thinking and 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 making a different decision tomorrow i've i've done it i have literally done it i i realized that for 18 years i had a belief that was holding me back and and it's some of the things you've talked about mm. over controlling over believing that it was it was me that was making the success and the freedom of giving away the things you know the best and communicating to people and seeing people for the talents that they have and encouraging them to uh, to to to, ex- to to expand to giving them tools that they need and the freedom and the license to to use those tools to create a better life for themselves mm-hmm. or a better outcome in a situation it's just it's just all there and what I've I just want to make sure that if there's anything that that is fundamental to how you choose to live your life that we make sure that we touch on it for our audience. Absolutely. I think the most important thing is to, to know that, you know, you have to experiment, you have to make those mistakes, like I said, and, and ultimately, you know, people often say, but what would they say? What would they think? The first question is who are they (laughs) and who cares who they are? You, you need to decide what works for you. And if you fail, you fail. If you lose, you know, I've been in situations I, I, where for six months I did not have a cent to my name. I, I used my last bit of money to go and buy ramen noodles, and I lived on ramen noodles and tap water for, three, for a three-month period. The last three months of, of the overall six-month period, one of my, my family members saw I didn't have food and brought me a bit of food, and they were very upset. I didn't tell them. But I, I realized it's not important the what's was it's not important to be successful, it's important to fail. Because the failure grounds us. You know, when people are successful too rapidly, too quickly, without any substance, they, they lose it. It's like winning the lotto. Friday you've got you've got a lot of money, a year later they're bankrupt. Because they're not grounded. And making mistakes ground us. Mm. You have to make mistakes. So experiment. And then and then the whole ego thing. Remember, ego comes from the word I. And and if you look at, at um, in in French, uh, the word of ego, so I means ego, which in French means amour propos. So that means that a sense of self-worth comes from yourself. So in other words, you can only believe in yourself if you if you believe in yourself. 
And the only way to do that is to fail. Because when you fail, you realize you realize what you're good at. You realize what what you can do differently, and you realize what are the things you, that you need to avoid. So whenever I get in a situation where I have an opportunity for a business, I know what I'm good at, and I do not do anything but the stuff that I'm good at. I get other people to do the other stuff. Yeah, that's uh, you've leveled. That's play, playing at an advanced level. That's leveling mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. You said something interesting. Who cares what other people think? There's a great saying that goes, nobody is a prophet in their hometown. (laughs) And I think there's power inside of that statement because what that implies is you're, you're doing what everybody else is doing. And now all of a sudden you try to do something more. You try to expand. Maybe you expand your social media. I see it with social media. It's a, a perfect analogy. Yeah. And all of a sudden, people start criticizing. Oh, who does that person think they are? Why? Uh, why is that person uh, posting that? Why are they? You know, and, and it's and it's because these people know you, and there's, you know, there's there's envy, and it, it maybe it's their ego manifesting itself. Uh, that you have the courage to do something that they don't. So, mm-hmm. you know, they'll rather than understand it and seek to understand it. And I've come to believe that envy is the enemy of enlightenment. Because if you're envious, mm-hmm. then you immediately shut down and you criticize it. But what you're really saying is, I don't want to look at that because it makes me feel like, I'm not doing enough. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you have to shake free of those bonds. You can't let other people's thinking. And sometimes it's other people's thinking. And sometimes it's you're thinking what they're going to think. It's not even real. You've just you've created an obstacle for yourself to do something based on what other people might possibly think or say when you're not around or even just think in their head. They're not even saying it. It's it's it almost sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud. Well, that's what we do. That's what we do. (laughs) It's exactly what we do. Remember, if if you don't, if your brain is not stimulated, in other words, if you if you don't have constant input of information, your brain will create its own reality. So Mm. if you if you don't have proper stimuli, you will start creating your own stuff and your own thoughts. And and what we do as humans, and I think on that point again, goes back to to do what's important for you. If you want to post, you post because it's for you, not for others. And I think what most people do is they live their life through others, and that's why they're unhappy. That's why they they never get what they want because they don't know what they want. If you know what you want, you will live your own life. Yeah. Any uh, in the absence of a void, whether it's a culture, uh, something will always rush in to fill it. Our brains are always moving. Uh, when we dream, that's why dreams probably are what they are because it's, uh, and, and so odd. I, I dreamt the other night that I was running around in a huge muffler. I woke up exhausted. Um, so Werner, I would like to go to, um, just a couple of final questions. I, Mm I, I, I want to learn, uh, I've got some questions about your travel because, uh, You've traveled to Russia extensively. You've traveled. Where have you traveled in the world that has been interesting or any travel anecdotes that you would care to share uh, throughout your life? There's, there's, there's lots of, of uh, 
of interesting experiences. I think my what my travels taught me, Jeff, is that you know, again, we 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 very isolated. You have to you have to get out. You have to see. One of the things I've done with my children is, is they've been in a number of countries in a number of places, and I make sure that they see different cultures. They experience different levels of of um, economic and 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 social. They have to see that there's disparity in the world, and they need to understand that. So I've taken them them everywhere possible. They've they've been on most continents. In my own personal experience, I think the countries that I've loved most is um, is Russia, particularly. I love Russia. It's one of it's a, it's a beautiful country, um, amazing people. Uh, the other countries that I love is Europe in general. Um, love Europe, but then I, I have to say my favorite country again is the U.S. Um, I actually bought a uh, a Sprinter van that we're going to use to travel the entire country uh, and go. I want to visit every single state and travel and and just see the U.S. because the U.S. has a lot of everything and more. And um, we've traveled extensively here, but I, I believe I haven't even seen ten percent. And, um, you know, countries like New Zealand, Australia, Singapore. I loved Singapore specifically because I'm a bit of a, a germaphobe and a, and a perfectionist. And, and it's one of the countries where when I, when I landed there, I was like, wow, I love this because everything was perfect. Mm. You know, I, I have a rule in my, in my office that all the computer screens have to be aligned and all the keyboards. So when I walk past the desk and I look left, everything's perfectly aligned. And in Singapore... Everything was aligned from even the flowers and the stems. <laughs> so I love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little OCD with lining things up. It's though there's there might be, for example, a, a soap dispenser, a couple of water bottles, and a handful of things on the counter. And if I walk by, they will all be in a straight line, and my family will <laughs> randomly go by and disorganize them. Uh, I have the same. Challenge. We all try to make order out of life. And mm-hmm. in the little ways and the big ways. Interesting. So here's a question. Who mm-hmm. other than an immediate family member has made the biggest impact on your life? So my, I had a professor at uh, university and, and he passed on around three years ago. And he was, he was like a brother, a father, a grandfather, all in one. And, he, he taught me a number of things, and the, and the one thing that stuck with me, he was my professor of, of statistics, and um, he said to me, whenever you do something, whenever you write a document, whenever you, before you deliver something to someone, make sure that you've checked it 40 times, four zero. And And when I started doing that, I realized the more you check it, the more you realize how your own ego your own beliefs impact on the way you do things because when you do something you do it because you believe that's the right thing to do based on on what happened in in the past but what he taught me was do this again and again and again until you can become objective until you can become neutral and if you think of science if you think of life if you think of all our experiences it's mostly based on on previous experiences and when they do experiments they want to prove another experiment wrong or right but there's not something new. And what he taught me is that always look for the new because the more you do it, the more you repeat that task, the repetition leads 
to something new and something different. So, mm. so he's had a huge impact on my life. Interesting. Fascinating. What is the most important advice that you would give to encourage an, an aspiring entrepreneur? I think, I think what most entrepreneurs should do is just do it. Go out and do it and ask yourself. The question I always ask myself is, what's the worst that could happen? Mm. What is the worst that could happen? So what if you have to sleep in your car for a night or two if you lose everything? So eat, what? Eat some ramen noodles for six months <laughs> yes. in tap water. <laughs> exactly. So my, you know, my question is, is, did you have a way to cook them or was it just warm tap water and they got as soft as they got? The first week I still had electricity and then when it ran out, I used to put it in the morning in the little cup and just leave it there. When I got back home, it was ready for consumption. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it was ab that. absolutely gross, but I just closed my eyes and I ate it. It is not. It's leftovers. That's all that is. <laughs> That's all that is. All right. Last question. Uh, you th what, uh, when, when you're gone from this world, and we all are, mm -hmm. what is the impact, or for that matter, what is anything that you aspire to leave behind? So it, it's a very good question, and it's something that I've often pondered on. And, you know, we also, we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave some imprint. You know, we want to make a dent, whatever the case may be. What I want to leave is something that is sustainable. I said earlier, work yourself out of a job. Um, what I've done is I created a world around me that where I'm not needed. So no matter what happens, everything continues. And I know that my family is cared for. I know that every, everything will just continue. The only difference is the person that now has access to my laptop and my banking details will do the banking. Wow. That's it. <laughs> That's the only, only thing. Well, fair enough. Werner, I know you're an astute reader, and I know this because I've made book recommendations to you, and 24 hours later, you've, you've, you've finished the book. So I know that you consume books voraciously and is there is there just one or two titles that you would throw out there that you think everybody should read you know i think there's there's one that i that i always recommend because you know people read what's on the surface the cursory stuff but they don't look at the deeper meaning and that book is think and grow rich by napoleon hill it's a hit i've probably read it about 20 times and it's such a critical critical book that should be on your bookshelf because it it's it's imperative that you understand the meaning of think and grow rich because we can think ourselves rich literally rich mm. in relationships rich in wealth rich in, in 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 health so that for me is a key book and i think um another book that i that i absolutely love also is um the phenomenon of man and in that book um you know, we we read about the fact that everything in the world is connected. Everything from from a little leaf that you step on on the pavement right through to the bird that flies outside. Everything is connected, and and we need to understand that. That you know, it's it's like the 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 old cliche of the butterfly effect. Remember that everything you do impacts in some other way, and we are all. We are all connected, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. 
So everything you do impacts on the world in some other way. Well, thank you for that, Werner. And thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm very grateful that you have shared your wisdom on the Jeff Duden Show. If our audience is interested in learning more about your work or getting in touch with you, tell them where they can find you. So the, the easiest place would be to go to LinkedIn and search my name, Werner Barkays and PhD, and just click there and send me a note, or they can just go to vernerbarkays.com, and that would uh, automatically link them up. That is W-E-R-N-E-R, and we will have Werner's work, we will have Werner's information, and anything that we talked about today on the Jeff Duden Show in the show notes. Thank you again, Werner, and until next time, away we go. Thank you for tuning in to The Jeff Duden Show. Interested in learning more about something I referenced in the episode? Check out the show notes for links to content and more. If you enjoyed my podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. Until next week, you can find me at jeffduden.com. Thank you for listening.